Thanks, Dustin. We won't be in Ephesians. We'll be in the Song of Solomon. So if you turn there, it's in the middle of the Bible after Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. If you've hit Job, you've gone too far. Um, while you're seeking Song of Solomon out, uh, just a reminder, this is, this is Easter season, so we like to um, plug these things that you can make use of during this time. You'll find these cards out on the nursery desk. One of them is the uh, just a general Easter invitation card. If you've got friends, family, co-workers that um, you'd like to invite to church during the Easter season, um, we'd love for you to make use of those. You can hand those out to people. It's got the church information on it, website, um, time of the services, how they can get in touch with us through Facebook and things like that if they want to follow up. And then these drive through cards are, are helpful to utilize during this season too. Um, it's got a little Easter message and printed on it. The purpose of these is that you would pay for the, it, it, when you're in a drive through sometime this month, you would, you would pay for the, the, the order of the car behind you and give them this card to hand to that person. So it's just a way to be a blessing to someone during this time of year. So we're going to begin a seven-week series um, on the Song of Solomon leading up to Easter. Uh, this week I came across an article uh, that ties into one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm desirous of preaching on this often neglected uh, book of the Bible. Uh, Scott Hubbard, writing at the Desiring God website, wrote an article this week called Pastors Are Only Matchmakers. He's referring, of course, to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, where Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul, in terms of thinking about his own ministry, thought about it as a, as a way of getting people married to Jesus, as a way of taking people who were unbetrothed, unmarried in a spiritual sense, and betrothing them, engaging them, and then getting them married to a husband. And that husband was Christ. Scott writes in this article, he says, Many Scottish pulpits once bore the words of John twelve twenty one on the inside so that only the preacher could see them. Whenever a pastor stood in the pulpit, he would find himself confronted with the same words some Greek visitors once spoke to the Apostle Philip. And those words on the back side of the pulpit that only the pastor could see when he'd come up for a sermon was, Sir, we would see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And deep in our souls, that's what resonates in the hearts of all of God's people. And that's your wish, no doubt, for anyone who would stand behind this pulpit. Sir, we would have you tell us of Jesus. Would you show us again our king in his beauty? Would you warm our heart with another glimpse of his glory? Would you uncloud the heavens and give us a sight of him? And that's exactly what I'd like to do over the next seven weeks in the book of Song of Solomon. I would like to become like John the Baptist if I could who said of himself in John chapter 3, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John knew that he wasn't the bridegroom. He was an assistant to the bridegroom, and his purpose was to come on the scene and prepare the way for Jesus, who was the bridegroom. And he rejoiced 
that Christ was coming in and receiving the spotlight. In fact, it was John who said, he must increase, I must decrease. Scott Hubbard again writes, the bridegroom's friend, John tells us, enjoys a peculiar kind of joy, not the joy of attention, but the joy of attention giving. He would rather stand and hear the bridegroom's voice than have 10,000 stand and hear his own. He would rather live unseen in the Jordan and watch all Galilee, Judea, and Samaria stream to Jesus than draw the crowds to himself. He would rather see the bride's eyes from the side as she stares in her grooms than to see them head on. And that's what I want to do over these next few weeks together is serve as an attendant to the bridegroom to direct our attention again to the bridegroom himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So over the next seven weeks, we are going to dive into the Song of Solomon, and we'll begin kind of dealing with the text itself next week. But for now, since this is oftentimes a very difficult book of the Bible to understand, I think it's helpful in this opening sermon to handle some introductory matters. So we're only going to consider one verse, which is no doubt the simplest verse in the entire Song of Solomon, and it's verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. We can close in prayer now, right? So this sermon, I'm going to give you some uh, heads up on the front end will be more education than application, but I hope that the explanation will serve edification. All right? In other words, it's going to feel a little bit more teachy, but I still hope over the long haul it will give us a better grasp and a firmer appreciation of this book. And I think if we don't do that and we just jump right in, we're going to lose some of what we might gain had we not done otherwise, which is what I'm trying to do this morning. So we're going to walk through four basic points this morning. They're on your outline if you picked up a bulletin on your way in. First of all, basic introduction to the Song of Solomon. A basic introduction to the Song of Solomon. I want to point out two things quickly, and they both come out of verse 1. First of all, it's a song. Second of all, it's by Solomon. Aren't you glad that you pay me for these profound insights? I mean, this is why I'm set aside to teach and preach, right? It's insights like that that I mine out of the text after rich, deep, long study. First of all, it's a song. The Song of Songs is literally Solomon's finest song. Of all the songs that he wrote, this is the best. It's a superlative statement, like Holy of Holies or vanity of vanities, or king of kings, or lord of lords. Song of Songs is an eight-chapter, 117-verse, 2,661-word love song. It is poetry, which means we're handling a different type of genre than narrative, storytelling, or an epistle, like a letter, which we've been considering in 1 Corinthians. Ian Duguid describes it well when he describes poetry as the following. Poetry is the art of condensation, that is, condensing ideas down to their roots. That is, expressing the maximum meaning in the minimum number of words. As a result, it's often, that is poetry, more evocative than expletive. It doesn't take time to unpack its figures of speech or to explain its analogies. It relies on the reader to fill in the blanks. 
Yet at the same time, it has the ability to address the whole person and move our souls with a power that prose can rarely match. So coming into this song, we need to understand its genre. It's a, it's a poem. It's one long poem comprised of different stanzas, and it's meant to be more evocative, that is, pull out an emotion, pull out a feeling, pull out an idea, rather than explain everything. So we need to know that going in. And this particular song, those of you who've read it and know it well, is candid about marriage and sexuality, but it's never crude. It's modest, but it's not prudish. So it's a song. It's meant to be sung and celebrated. And so we're entering into a genre that I don't believe I've preached ever, unless you count the Psalms as forms of poetry, which they certainly are. But this is a song. It's a poem. So we need to recognize that as we come in. Secondly, it's written by Solomon. According to verse 1, it's penned by King Solomon, who was Israel's wisest king, the son of David, who reigned from 971 to 931 B.C. over the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah. 1 Kings 4.32 says that Solomon composed 3,000 Proverbs, many of them, at least some of them, we have in the book of Proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. Yet, in all the songs he wrote, the song of songs was his best. But a question surely arises if you know anything about the life of Solomon. How could a man of such notorious sexual deviance write a book like this? After all, according to 1 Kings 11, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, a far cry from the monogamous devotion that's expressed in this song. As a polygamist on the grandest scale, Solomon hardly provides an example of ideal marital love. Some propose a solution to this dilemma by stating that the book was not written by Solomon, but rather a book about Solomon or written to Solomon. Others believe Solomon wrote Song of Songs as a young man before all the catastrophic marital failures he encountered later on. And then he wrote Proverbs as a middle-aged man, and then he wrote Ecclesiastes as an old man. Well, that could be possible, but we're not given any signals in the text that that's the case. But if that is true, then Song of Solomon is, is historical poetry about his first love. But I think it's more likely that Solomon penned Song of Songs later in his life as an ideal poem of what human love was intended to be. There are aspects of the beauty of Jesus that can only be communicated and appreciated by a restored backslider. And if you consider where this book falls in the wisdom literature, it follows Ecclesiastes. And I think it follows Ecclesiastes for a reason. We know that Ecclesiastes concludes with this kind of sober note from Solomon himself where he says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son, be aware of anything beyond these, of many, making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And he's reflecting back on a life that he failed to do that in many ways. But I think in light of that, there's gospel encouragement 
from knowing that Solomon penned this book. Because it's gospel hope for sinners on the front end. It reminds us that some of the holiest parts of God's word are not only for sinners, but written by sinners. And actually was written through a sinner because there never was anyone that took up a pen to write a part of the Bible that was not like you and me. A sinner saved by God's grace. And that's a wonderful thing. And if God could turn Solomon's heart and through him write a poem like this, then God can take every one of us, whatever we have done. Perhaps you're here this morning and thinking this very thing, how great my sin is. And you may have been a great sinner in the realm of sexuality and marriage, but he can take you and remake you and make you to sing a song like this one to the praise of his glorious grace as well. So that's a basic introduction to the Song of Solomon. We see that it's a song, and it's written by Solomon, the king of Israel. Secondly, interpretive challenge. Interpretive challenge with the Song of Solomon. Now, if you know anything about uh, church history and the way that the church has handled this particular book, there are various interpretations that are proposed throughout church history. And I want to give you the main three as I understand them. First of all, the allegorical interpretation, which leads to spiritual illumination. This is by far the most common treatment of the Song of Solomon in the history of the church. Allegory is an extended metaphor, usually employing highly figurative language in order to communicate or convey some timeless truths that are not on the surface of the text. The characters, the places, and the details of the text are not historical, but they're really just literary vehicles that are designed to communicate spiritual realities. Thus, the bride's dark complexion that we see in this book is a sign of sin and the need for conversion. Her two breasts are either the two cherubim between the Shekinah glory of, or a reference to the Old and New Testament. Her navel in chapter 7, verse 2, is the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, of course, because that's what I think of when I think of a navel. Or the church's baptismal font. The voice of the turtle dove in chapter 2, verse 12, refers to the preaching of the apostles. Don't you think of that when you think of turtle doves? And Solomon's eight, 80 concubines in chapter 6, verse 8, represents the 80 heresies that would afflict the church. So you can see an allegorical reading of this is going to take the passage and try to figure out what it's alluding to. What allusions in the Bible is it communicating? And read those allusions into the text itself. You say, well, why would the church do that? Why would the church historically do that with poetry? Well, one reason is they believe that's what poetry was intended to communicate, is that it was intended to be allegorical, and we're to interpret all of uh, poetry in the Bible as allegorical. And so the primary purpose that would, then would be to communicate spiritual truths through these figurative images and situations. But you could see how theologically dangerous that could become if it's unmoored and untethered to the Bible itself you're going to invent some wacky ideas about what Solomon was intending to communicate in this particular poem. So that's the allegorical interpretation. Secondly, you have the literal interpretation. 
the literal interpretation leading to moral formation. So this interpretation would take a more literary approach where the book is seen merely as a love song written by Solomon about his romantic relationship with a Shulamite bride. And in this sense, its primary purpose is to paint a portrait of human marriage as God intended it to be. The song, therefore, has a teaching function. It's didactic. It's moral. It's designed to shape our understanding of human marriage and teach us how to live out that covenant in a God-honoring way. The song comes to us in a world of sin where lust and passion are on every hand, where fierce temptations assail us and try to turn us aside from God and his standards for marriage. And it reminds us in a particularly beautiful way how pure and noble true love is and models for us how to pursue it. That's how some, especially in recent decades, have viewed the Song of Solomon and have preached it, the literal interpretation. But there's a third way. And that's what I'm calling the canonical interpretation. That is, an interpretation that takes in light where Song of Solomon is in the Bible and how it reflects the, the story of the entire Bible. The canonical interpretation, which leads, in my mind, to Christological revelation. That is, it's designed to communicate and show Jesus to us. So it is an attempt to combine the strengths of both the allegorical and literal interpretations. Unlike the allegorical, though, this canonical approach affirms the historical meaning of the text, but it interp interprets the book as a love poem and celebrates the joys and virtues of marital love. Nevertheless, this canonical view, unlike the literal view, sees beyond the immediate historical reference to theological and canonical, that is, biblical realities. Proponents of this approach, which I would count myself among them, base their interpretation upon the nature of human marriage as analogous to the relationship between Christ and the church, right? And that's what Dustin read for us this morning in Ephesians 5. God designed the marital relationship to reflect inner Trinitarian love as well as divine human relationship. So in the context of redemptive history, the marriage relationship serves as a type of the Lord's relationship to Israel and to Christ's relationship to the church. And so as we make our way through the Song of Solomon, each Sunday, whoever our scripture reader is, we'll be reading a passage from the Old Testament that, I, that identifies this relationship as marital. So we're going to see how God thought of his relationship to his people as a marriage. And then we'll dive into the Song of Solomon to see what we learn about that from this particular song. Now, which approach should we take? Allegorical, literal, canonical? Well, each interpretive approach exhibits certain strengths and certain weaknesses, doesn't it? The allegorical interpretation correctly perceives the higher spiritual purpose of the Song of Solomon. That's a good insight from the allegorical interpretation. The problem is, is that when you allegorize this entire book, you show a disinterest in the historicity of the book, where it came in the history of Israel, and also a preoccupation with deciphering minute details which invalidate the interpretive process and make many of the insights exegetically absurd. But 
Also, secondly, the literal interpretation correctly interprets Song of Solomon as a poetic expression of romantic love involving human beings. That's what the poem is about. God is not even mentioned in the book. It's clearly, first of all, a love poem between a bride and her bridegroom-to-be. But this literal interpretation sometimes fails to appreciate the larger theological and biblical context of the Song of Solomon and almost preaches it as a moralistic book in which this is the way human marriage is meant to be done, so pursue it this way and solve conflict this way and get married this way and engage with each other this way, and that's it. That's the only reason it's in the Bible. And while that's true for one of its teaching purposes, that is not the main reason it's in the Bible. The canonical interpretation that I've been describing utilizes the strengths of both the allegorical and literal while avoiding the weaknesses, I think. Because the canonical view follows the allegorical in placing the book within the focus of the entire Bible, but unlike it, it does justice to the historical facets of the text without forgetting the larger biblical context. And like the literal interpretation, this view fully appreciates the God-given gift of marriage and love within marriage. Frankly, I'm not convinced that we have to choose only one of these options. If it's not about human marriage, then the metaphors of God's relationship with his people would make no sense at all. And if it's not also about God's relationship with his people, then what are Paul and Hosea and Ezekiel and Isaiah doing when they allude to marriage in terms of God's relationship with his people? This book gives us much wisdom, yes, on dating, on marriage, on sex, on conflict resolution, but in so doing, it shows us the paradise of knowing Christ and being intimately known by him. Here's the way Bob Gonzalez summarizes the point of the Song of Songs. And I'm going to be using Song of Songs, Song of Solomon interchangeably throughout the series. They're, it's called both things. In sum, the Song of Songs does not merely point to the joys of lovemaking and the virtues of monogamous commitment. As part of that canon which speaks of Christ, it reveals the redemptive historical reality of Yahweh's passionate and jealous love for Israel, which in turn points forward to Christ's affectionate and exclusive love for his bride, the church. One thing is for certain, there is a love that is stronger than, de than death, and that love finds its archetype in the heart of God. The very best examples of human love are but a shadow. So we're going to deal with the text as it is, learn from it what we learn from it, but always keeping in mind that there's a bigger story being told, a deeper story being told, that won't lead us into allegory, but will lead us into the story of the Bible, that Christ is redeeming a bride for himself to be his own forever. Thirdly, general outline. What I want to do in the next few moments is just walk through the general outline of the book. What is this about, and, and how does it come to us, and how are we to make sense of it? So before getting into the specifics of the story that's being told in this poem, I want to talk about how we decipher an outline from a poem. One of the ways we do it is by paying attention to literary markers in the text itself, and a second way we do it is by paying attention to the narrative flow of the poem. 
So first of all, I want to talk about the literary markers that we see in the Song of Solomon. The poetry here moves from character to character. Perhaps you see that in your own text. She, others, he. There are three different people or two people and one group of people that are being addressed in this poem, that are, that are playing characters, that are, that, are, that are occupying a role. They are the man, they are the woman, and they are the daughters of Jerusalem. Solomon uses two refrains that help guide us through the book. And each refrain occurs three times, and I want you to see this. The first refrain is found in chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7, where we read, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This phrase is used again in chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not, sit up, did you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And again in chapter 8, verse 4, where we read, not surprisingly, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. These repeated verses are literary markers designed to point us to the main point of the poem and to give us handlebars by which we can navigate the structure of the poem. Now, there's a second refrain, and that is found in chapter 2, verse 16, where we read, My beloved is mine, and I am his. We see this phrase show up in chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 3, and chapter 7, verse 10. So these two refrains serve as literary markers that are designed to be signposts helping us guide, helping to guide us along in our understanding of the poem and how it breaks up. And it marks the book's many divisions. Now, without denying that the song is not some sort of narrative poem in the straightforward sense, you can see an outline begin to emerge of an unfolding story in this poem. So I want to come secondly to the narrative flow. The unfolding story of the Song of Solomon is as follows. You have a young couple who begin the book in love, but apart from one another. They marry and they consummate their relationship and they begin their new life together in the same home while negotiating their first conflict. Sound like anyone's honeymoon to you? But they grow in their relationship over time. And then they finally integrate their marriage within their larger family. That's the song. A young couple in love, getting married, consummating their marriage, beginning to navigate new life together, resolving conflict, and integrating their lives into their community. It's the story of marriage. It's the story many of us walked when we got married. But the book is, while I said it's one poem, it's composed in six scenes. Six scenes. And I want to walk through each one of those scenes. And those scenes are going to serve as our six sermons going out from this particular sermon. So next week we will consider scene one, which I'm calling Intoxicating Attraction. And it's in chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 7. So let me tell you this brief story. After the book's title is given, we're immersed into the intoxication of love between this young couple. 
which is better than wine. In the first main stanza of the poem, the couple delights in this kind of playful back and forth of getting to know one another and finding ways to spend time together as their growing attraction develops. And as they draw close and move into a place of profound intimacy, the woman emerges from the chamber to warn the virgin daughters of Jerusalem not to awaken such love in themselves until the time is right. And that is the first scene. The second scene is in chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5, what I'm calling springtime courtship. The second stanza focuses on the wooing and the courtship in this relationship, completely from the woman's perspective. She describes the man coming to see her before quoting what he says and what she hopes he will say to win her heart. She longs for them to achieve a mutual possession of one another, but must still say goodbye at the end of the evening and send each other back home. And this leads her to a dream of what life would be like with him or without him, a reality that she cannot bear to accept. And upon consummation, she emerges once more to adjure the maidens of Jerusalem not to awaken such love until the time is right. The third scene, undefiled intimacy in chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 5, verse 1. This third scene opens with a question. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? We'll get the answer momentarily when the woman is covered in myrrh and frankincense. But first, the poet wishes to take a look at the lavish and luscious bed of Solomon, which he describes as inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. But that bed has every appearance of a seedy honeymoon suite in Las Vegas where the love comes and goes with each addition to the harem. It's cheap. But in contrast to this polygamous, cheap lust which characterized Solomon's life, the undefiled intimacy of the song's couple is a glorious paradise. There's no shame, there's no fear, there's no violation, there's just sheer beauty and delight. It's worth the wait. Scene four, sanctifying conflict. In chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 3. The opening scene shows that the honeymoon has definitely come to an end as the couple's miscues with one another lead to tension and disappointment with each other. Because God, conflict is part of God's plan to make relationships stronger than they were before. And that sanctifying strengthening occurs when the daughters of Jerusalem compel the woman to answer two questions. What makes your man so great, and where is this relationship heading? In other words, now that you've had this fight, what are you going to do about it? Is it over, or are you going to lean in? Scene 5, committed exclusivity. Song, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 through chapter 8, verse 3. Here we get a brief intermission highlighting the woman's uniqueness before highlighting the exclusivity of this relationship despite the many things that might pull them in completely different directions. She goes down to check on him, but the daughters of Jerusalem want her to return to their friend group, putting her in a tug of war between her friends and her lover. He wins her with his praise and with his passion, and then the two of them celebrate their continued passion in both field and village. But, such fiery passion requires careful guarding so as not to awaken love before the time is right. And then finally, scene six, true love. In chapter eight, verse five through 14. This is the conclusion of the poem. 
It's here that we learn what true love is as defined by God in contrast to the cheap lust defined by the world and is exemplified by Solomon himself. True love recognizes its own power, which is strong as death, and isn't naive about the control it can have over a human heart. True love esteems the virtue of virginity as the unmarried wait for the right time and hold out for a godly partner. True love repudiates cheap lust. Solomon is welcome to have his thousand-piece harem, but this woman's vineyard is her own to be given to her one and only. True love anticipates something even better, as the book concludes with a final bit of flirting and suggestion and innuendo for what is to come in the relationship ahead. So that's the general outline. It's a love story with all of its twists and turns and challenges and expectations and desires fulfilled and desires quenched. It's a beautiful love story. So fourthly and finally, we come to the biblical lens, to the Song of Solomon. How will we navigate this love story in a way that honors the poem itself while also recognizing the larger biblical story it's intending to tell? This mystery is profound, and I am saying that marriage refers to Christ and the church. So says the Apostle Paul. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, marriage was always intended to point to Christ and the church. In Genesis 1, that was the plan. It was never just a way for the human race to propagate itself. It was never just a way for the man not to be alone. It was never just a way to create partnership and companionship among male and female, although that was a purpose. It was never the primary purpose. Because the Bible story begins in a marriage, but it ends in a marriage. And between the beginning and the end is the story of God's marriage. And so Song of Solomon, in the middle of the Bible, we have a song celebrating the glory of marriage. Halfway in the story. Does that shock you as unique or strange? or No, it strikes me as... It's telling the story the Bible is telling. Genesis 1, the marriage of Adam and Eve. Genesis, or Revelation 19, the marriage of the second Adam and his Eve, the church. So songs, like the Song of Songs, places this truth front and center for our gaze and meditation. The Song of Songs, then, is not a random collection of Syrian, Egyptian, or Canaanite cultic marriage liturgies. It's not a drama with various acts or scenes, although it is that. It's not only that, attractive as that view is, nor is it an anthology of disconnected songs praising the bliss of human love between a man and a woman. It is best understood as a theological and lyrical masterpiece that shows us how the bride and bridegroom in this, strong, in this song portray for us the relationship between God and Israel, Christ and his church, the Savior and his people. I think Ray Ortland describes it well in his excellent book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, when he writes the following. If the Bible is telling us the truth about reality, then the universe we live in was created primarily with marital romance in mind. 
The heavens and the earth were created for the marriage of Adam and Eve. The new heavens and the new earth will be created for the marriage of Christ and his bride. The whole of cosmic reality exists as the venue for the eternal honeymoon of the perfect husband with his perfect bride in marital bliss forever and ever. This is the breathtaking claim of the Bible. Human marriage has always been intended by God to serve as a prophetic whisper of the eternal marriage. The eternal romance, not in the final analysis, the love of the couple getting married, but the love of Jesus for us and our joyful deference to him. The eternal love story is why God created the universe and why God gave us marriage in Eden and why couples fall in love and get married in the world today. Every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows like Danny and Brianna did yesterday, they are reenacting the biblical love story whether they realize it or not. The Son of God stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride as his very heart and body with his inmost sincerest love so that he can fit her to be with him forever above. That dramatic super reality is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. It is truly profound. And Christian married couples have the privilege of making the mystery of the gospel visible in the world today by living out the dynamic interplay of an Ephesians 5 quality marriage. We should not think that Christ and the church are the metaphor in this passage, but the reverse. Christ and the church are the reality of realities. And our Christian marriages are the metaphors. So we need to keep that order in front of us as we read the Song of Songs. It's not human marriage first, divine marriage second. It's divine marriage first, human marriage second. And the human marriage is meant to be the copy. The divine's the original. It's not vice versa. And the Song of Songs can truly only be sung by those who know the love of loves. And what is the love of loves? Well, dear ones, you know that story. There was a king. He was a son of David. And he was the greatest of all kings. He was the wisest of all. And he lived in glorious splendor. And he looked down and he beheld one who was to be his bride, who was ashamed, who didn't feel she was worthy. This is way better than Aladdin did it. All right? Even though that's a cool love story too. But you've got this divine king looking down at this unworthy bride, and she wasn't very pretty, and she didn't have much to commend her, but that didn't matter to this king, because he set his heart on her, and he would have her and none other. And once he had fixed his love on her, he would move heaven and earth and hell itself to make her his own. And that he did. And so we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the song of songs, the song of Solomon, the way in which this book portrays for us the beauties of love at its best and also the best of all loves, which is your love for us in Christ. If there are any among us this morning who don't know that love, who've never tasted 
the love of loves. May this morning through this book lead them to embrace Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. May you draw their hearts, those who feel worthy, those who feel unworthy. Lord, correct all of our thinking regarding who the Son of Man desires, who the divine King, who the Son of David desires to have for his bride. And make us your own. Draw us to your heart. Lead us to your very heart and cause us to dwell deeply and rest deeply in you, to drink deeply from the fountain of your love for us that's presented to us in this love song. And we ask this in the name of our glorious Redeemer and King, our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.